Did you know 90% of top performers have a high emotional intelligence and a higher than average annual income? As one of the most highly valued skill sets, emotional intelligence or EI is what distinguishes outstanding leaders. Deepen your EI skills today with the Daniel Goleman Emotional Intelligence course, a 12-week online course to develop your inner capacity, become a stellar leader, and build high-performance teams. Save your seat and $50 with the coupon code PODCAST. Learn more at courses.keystepmedia.com. That's courses.key stepmedia.com. Don't forget to enter coupon code PODCAST at checkout for $50 off your registration. Hi, everyone. This week on the show, we're starting a series on conflict management, and we're going to talk with Aaron Wolf, who helps people when they have problems with big things like water management rights. And he said that one thing he does when he brings groups together who are having a dispute is ask them three things they have in common. So today I have two volunteers here. What's your name? Dan. And yours? Cora. Okay, and Dan, your core is mother. Yes. Have the two of you ever had a conflict with each other? Definitely. All right, and what are three things you have in common you can both talk? We both are able to speak Chinese and write it. We're both female. We're awesome. Thank you, that didn't take long. And now let's turn it over to the hosts who are going to talk about conflict management. Thanks for tuning in. Welcome to First Person Plural, Emotional Intelligence and Beyond. I'm Daniel Goleman. I'm Hanuman Goleman. And I'm Elizabeth Solomon. Today we're beginning a series of interviews about conflict management. Our guest is Aaron Wolf. Just so everyone knows, Aaron is my cool older cousin and Dan's nephew. And in fact, Aaron uh, and my wife, Tara Bennett Goldman, and I have been doing workshops together on uh, chemistry of connection and some of the core ideas uh, in chemistry of connection. Aaron has worked into his own take on conflict management. Aaron's certainly a friend of the show. I'm curious, are we going to get into a family reunion gone bad today? Actually, he's a guy that I always looked up to on on visits to my grandmother's house, and now he's doing fascinating work. He's a water resources geographer at Oregon State University and a trained mediator. And that sounds a, a little bit dry, but water resources brings him into right into the heart of some really fascinating human experience. It gets uh, it involves faith and uh, water rights, which is about the very survival of the people that he's working with. Dan, you've researched and written extensively about conflict management, and I'm curious from your perspective how Aaron's focus on shared values in this interview aligns with what you've learned. 
Well, one of the facets that Aaron uh, uses in his work is finding a way people can connect. And this, of course, is comes straight out of uh, Chemistry of Connection, the workshop with Tara Bennett-Goldman and I, and uh, actually from her book, uh, Mind Whispering. But from my point of view, uh, I think that conflict management really hinges on the ability to find a way to keep people linked, even as they're disagreeing. You know, Dan, one of the things that comes to mind to me, just thinking about, you know, your early studies at Harvard and you choosing to pursue and embark upon the study of meditation, for example, at a time when that was kind of not part of the zeitgeist or the conversation, particularly in academia. And I'm, I'm curious to hear, you know, sort of thinking about that as something that's potentially conflictual. How did you kind of use values or some sort of shared vision in order to, you know, quote unquote, kind of influence Harvard into supporting you? Uh, a while ago, a long time ago, actually, when I was at Harvard, I had decided that I would do my uh, doctoral dissertation on meditation. However, my professors were very psychoanalytic and they thought this was a really stupid idea. And so I had to navigate a, a real, uh, I had to manage conflict there because they were against it. And yet I, I really felt strongly that this is what I wanted to do. So it, it seemed to me what I needed to do, what I needed to do was to manage the conflict, you know, to, it was a tense situation and that's a hallmark of conflict management but I had to tactfully bring the disagreement in the open and come up with a solution that everyone could endorse. And this is of course, something that leaders who take the time to understand different perspectives work toward finding a common ground in which everyone can agree. But I didn't know that at the time, I was just going blind. It seemed to me, I wanted to do this. I had to get everyone to agree. I had to acknowledge that they had, uh, you know, a point of view that I could see, but that I didn't agree with it. And that there was a higher value that we all could agree on, which was, hey, let's find some science to apply here. You were in a, a school of psychology. So if, were you also looking towards the future of, of the study and, and thinking about how you're expanding the field? Well, one of the things that kept me going was that I actually felt, you know, deep in my heart, that meditation could have value for many, many people. And that if there was a study from Harvard, which is where I was, that showed that it had some value, uh, people might try it out. I think that uh, at some level, I felt that what we needed was a culture shift in values, that this could help that along. I had no idea that, you know, decades later, this would be very commonplace. At the time, it was very radical. I was a real outlier taking a risk, but I felt strongly that there could be benefit here for lots of people. In our interview, Aaron talks about some cultures and faiths that have created systems and rituals for helping a community heal from conflict. Can you think of any examples from your own research of systems designed to manage conflict especially well? <laughs> You know, this, this is something that I think uh, modern civilization has reached some limits on. I think the European Union is a, a beautiful example of an ideal type of how we might have a, an institution that transcends 
local needs, local boundaries, and local vision. Uh, we need a lot more of that. I can think of traditional cultures that have uh, rituals for managing conflict, and it's part of the system of that culture. For example, the Kung Bushmen, uh, when someone has a disagreement with someone else, uh, they don't speak to that disagreement specifically, but they spend all night dancing and singing together. And it has a very healing effect. Beautiful. Let's listen to the interview with Aaron Wolf. So it's really fun to be doing this with you. Thank you for being here. Of course, it's a pleasure, Hanuman. And as an introduction, I actually don't know your, your title and your professorship. Yep. So I'm a professor of geography at Oregon State University, and I run a program in water conflict management, which means when um, either countries share rivers or, or groundwater aquifers or, or different groups of stakeholders need to figure out how to collectively manage a body of water, uh, that's something that, that our center uh, focuses on. How do, you, how do you have these difficult conversations uh, with water being the vehicle that, that brings people in, into the room? And then from there, I've also been involved increasingly in uh, both interfaith and intrafaith uh, dialogues uh, between faiths and within faiths, and uh, also between government agencies, sometimes uh, Believe it or not, even, even our government agencies can have disputes with each other. It's interesting work to be drawn to. And I wonder what it is about the work that initially uh, got you involved in it. What draws you to this work? Oh, sure. Well, as you know, Hanuman, I grew, I grew up in San Francisco and spent a lot of time in the Middle East. And I think in, in both those places, water is uh, both a source of real tension between uh, either stakeholders in the case of California or countries in the case of the Middle East. Um, but also it turns out, again, a, a vehicle for dialogue. And I think oftentimes if we focus on politics, we focus on the things that divide us, you can just bang your head against the wall. There just is no way uh, oftentimes to, to find um, any kind of approach to to better solutions if you only focus on on the political aspects and and when i understood that the politics and 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 the resources were intertwined and that you could use that uh, connection as a way to to help uh, focus a dialogue it was very attractive to me so first i became very versed on the technical side i was trained as a groundwater hydrologist and worked for the uh, u.s geological survey for a number of years uh, but then increasingly understanding that the science is a great baseline, but only gets you so far. If you have a, a room full of angry people and you come in and you say, don't worry, you don't have to be angry anymore. I've figured out your solution. All it does is make them angrier. So that sent me back for training on the policy side, on the conflict what we used to call conflict resolution side, and to really learn more around how do you help uh, guide difficult conversations? How do you help people uh, find their shared values? Uh, how do you work together towards, well, really towards a better future? So you just articulated what the work is really clearly. It's helping two sides come to, to some terms that they can agree on. And I wonder what it is for you about that process that really resonates with you in the world? Well, sure. Uh, as I've become older and, and kind of, you know, moved from working from my head to my heart, if you will, and thinking 
less in terms of kind of tangible things that can be negotiated to more energetic work. How do you how do you bring healing energy into a room? That's hugely gratifying work. When you're when you're a part of uh, even in a small way, it, it went for an instant. People who had been on opposing sides can come to some kind of a, a plan together, or a, a joint understanding. I think literally energetically, there, there's, there's a positive impact that one gets. I think the same, you know, people who work in, in one-on-one, helping people work with their internal conflicts, people in psychology or psychiatry, I, I think there are some in those fields who get energy from it. Or being in a classroom where where you're helping somebody see profoundly new understanding for the first time. These are just moments of transformation that um, that it's a privilege to be a part of. And I think I think that's the part. And and in the end of the day, with so much pain and divisiveness in, in the world, um, I think it's incumbent on all of us to heal where we can, to, to do whatever little bit of work of, of reaching out and, and helping build bridges. It's incumbent on all of us to do whatever we can towards those ends. Do you think of yourself as a healer? No, I, I, I think of myself as a vehicle um, or a conduit, if at all. I mean, you ask the motivation, and, and, and I know these kinds of concepts are comfortable for you personally, Hanuman, but also I, I imagine listeners to this podcast is um, this is the work, right? I mean, all of us are, are deeply embedded in this, in this energetic work trying to bring about a better age. And so, you know, rooted individually in, in my, own, my own faith, but also kind of more ecumenically around using faith-based tools or, or using faith-based understandings of energy and of uh, shared values, I think it's well beyond any individual. So I don't think of myself really as an individual, but but more as a as an organism within within a movement. Spoken like a true healer. <laughs> Would you give an example of your work and really start at the beginning? You know, how did how did people come together? Sure. So as I said, I usually get called when um, either either different countries are having disagreements around a shared uh, water body, a shared river that flows from one country to another, or when different uh, groups within a country are having problems figuring out how to, how to manage their uh, shared resources. And so in this particular case, I was asked to help facilitate a dialogue um, between four countries, the four lower Mekong countries. So this is Laos, Cambodia, Vietnam, and Thailand. And um, they've been working together fairly well for decades. Uh, they have a, a commission and, and a, a formal body. But from time to time, issues come up that are contentious or, or that, that need a bit of uh, facilitation. And, and one of the issues is when pollution crosses a border, identifying what the source is and, and how to mitigate the negative impacts of the pollution. It's hard enough to do within a country. So we have those challenges within the U.S., but it's, it's that much harder when the pollution crosses an, an international border. So that's how I, I was invited. It, again, the representatives from these four countries, and, the, and they're dealing with this issue of cross-border uh, environmental impacts. Um, and, and I should preface, there are a couple of principles that I've come to understand 
uh, either through through my own faith path or through uh, more formal training and, and conflict. Uh, and one of one of the key principles is that when you see anger, listen for vulnerability. And so, uh, in, immediately as as the meeting started, and and you're looking for for the setting. Generally, these meetings are in in very nondescript uh, international chains. Although I have to say, in Southeast Asia, uh, even these big chains often have beautiful gardens. And so fortunately, we had a big wall of glass overlooking a a gorgeous garden. And so uh, immediately, I mean, as we started, it was clear that there was real tension uh, between three countries and and one of the countries. And, And really, this came up instantly as we made the most basic of proposals. Shall we monitor using this well-known process for monitoring. Three countries said yes, one country said no. Uh, Shall we use this long established list of pollutants to help us identify the sources of pollution? Three countries said yes, one country said no. And even innocuous things, shall we go to lunch at noon? Three countries said yes, one country said no. So as when you see this kind of, of real intransigence, you know something's up. I mean, that doesn't take a lot of training to figure out. Um, and so you go through in, in your mind, what what are the possible stories here? And and oftentimes when a party is digging in their heels, either they have the most power in the room, in which case they don't want to move, or they have the least power in the room and they're feeling uh, vulnerable. And And knowing what little I knew about the politics of the region, I assumed it was it was the latter, and and so there really is nowhere to go. I mean, if if there, we'd already established that any decision making would be consensus based, and so with three to one, there was nothing at all that that we can do. So so I did what I do when I'm stuck, which is I called a break, and I and I asked uh, the delegate if if she would uh, take a walk with me in the in this beautiful garden. And um, and as she did, of course, again, what what you learn about anger is that it's often expressed outward. But again, the vulnerability is internal. And the, the best way to understand it is to is to listen. And I mean, listen really deeply uh, in ways that we're not very good at in the West uh, to listen, not with your ears, but listen from your heart and to give lots and lots of space for the inevitable venting, which then will give rise to to the actual concern. And so that's precisely what happened. We're walking and and sure enough, a lot of venting. Those other countries, they're trying to take advantage of us. Those other countries, they're bullying us every which way. Those other countries, they don't know who they're dealing with. We're gonna stand our ground. And you listen and you listen, you listen. And then what happens, in cases like this, at some point she had vented to the end, and there's a sigh. To be honest with you, Aaron, I'm not sure that our technical people are up to the same standards of the other three countries. And there you understand what the vulnerability is. And and heightened, don't forget, this is Southeast Asia, where honor and face are are hugely important, right? So to to show that kind of reluctance on on the part of your technical people would would have cost her uh, honor in the room. And and she's very reticent to show any kind of lack of capacity. 
So we continue on and, and we go back in the room. And, and that's where then with that kind of understanding, you can help shape the process to where instead of rushing to try and move forward, uh, we we now take a step back, and I said, "Look, we've all we've been going about this wrong, and it's my fault. We've been trying to to move forward on all these regulations and so on. What we probably ought to be doing is establishing a joint, a collaborative, unified way to do the technical work. Why don't we start with basic um, capacity building workshops where we're all getting on the same page for a, a, a process that we all agree on for the Mekong way to do this work. At which point she jumped in delightedly and said that that's a good idea. We can have the first workshop in, in our country. So that's the kind of thing where the importance of listening comes up, the importance of the signal of anger of somebody's amygdala being triggered, representing a certain amount of vulnerability and giving the space for, for the actual stories to come out so that the, uh, what's truly happening can be addressed rather than the initial positions uh, and the things that divide us. All of that, I think, come out in, in this setting. When you get all of those folks into the room and three say yes and one says no and three say yes and one says no, what does that feel like for you? I have assumptions, but I'd love to hear what that experience is actually like. Because um, you're, you're in this position where you're tasked with helping them get beyond that. Yeah, I think, you know, like, like teaching, like facilitation, I think you start, you know, maybe in your 20s and 30s working in your head and thinking that you have some obligation to the answer um, and that people are looking to you for an answer. And over time, I've, I've kind of dropped down, and now I really lead with with my heart, and my intentions are there to be of service. And my experience increasingly is when you're transparent and you're open about what you can and can't do, people are are very generous. And um, and all I'm there to do is to is to guide a process. And sometimes the process gets somewhere, and sometimes it doesn't. It's not a reflection on me either way. Again, I, I keep working to, to remove my, myself as, a, as an agent in, in any of this. I'm a conduit and a, and a facilitator. And so as, as I do that, if I don't know, I'll say I don't know. If I feel stuck, we'll take a break. If, if things aren't working, we'll postpone and figure out what we can do before the next meeting. And, and these are totally uh, comfortable, increasingly comfortable outcomes for the processes that I'm involved with. So you, you're just cool as a cucumber the whole time that like as, as tensions are building. Let me put it this way. I aspire to cucumber coolness. <laughs> I don't always get there. What is it actually like then? Well, it's like any kind of practice, Hanuman. I know, I know you, you've done your share of of understanding what's happening, being able to observe what's happening inwardly and and just letting it be. You know, one of the tactics that uh, when people in very high tense situations um, are kind of being pushed towards realize they're they're about to come to an agreement. Um, one of the tactics is, is they all gang up on the facilitator and oftentimes in very, very personal ways. And 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 again, in my 20s and 30s, that was deeply concerning and my amygdala would flash all over the place and I'd get defensive and 
and increasingly I just am able at least to to be self-aware enough to to recognize that most of the time it really is not about me that this is a, this is a tactic and not to take it personally because again I aspire not to be there as as an individual it's a beautiful aspiration I find it hard to I mean I have aspirations as well and I find it hard to uh, actually arrive at the most of the time I find myself navigating the waters towards my aspirations or forgetting about them completely. It's a practice. It's, it's a practice like any other. And what I've learned and, and also learned in doing workshops with your father is I think so when, when you feel the, the, the amygdala signaling, what I've learned over time is really instead of letting it then lead into an emotional response that then leads into a story that then leads into another more and more emotion and you end up in this horrible death spiral so you're you know you're stuck in traffic on the on the freeway and you're late to a very important meeting and your battery and your phone is dead and you can't let them know and you start and your amygdala goes off and and you know there's going to be all this shame and they're going to talk about you and maybe you lose your job and and that then drives the emotional angst which in turn leads to more and more story about how this is the worst thing that could possibly happen ever. So learning to take the amygdala capture rather as, as a leader in this process and as a signal that you need to pay attention. So the other route is your heart's thumping, your, your uh, muscles are tightening up. Whoa, okay, that's a signal I need to pay attention. What's going on? So what I tell myself explicitly in these situations is stop and breathe and listen. So just the stop, noticing the amygdala capture. Go to the breath, which helps center and cut off that horrible, you know, the emotion and then the story. Just focus on the breath for a second and then ask myself, move into listening mode. What am I being called to do in this moment? And so then you have a choice. You're stuck in, in your car. There's nothing you can do. You really, you have two choices and only two choices. Either you can be late to this important meeting in anguish, or you can simply be late to the meeting. Those are the only two choices you have. And if you're conscious that those are it, what the heck? radio works, roll down the windows. How often do you get a couple of minutes to yourself just with no obligation and nothing to do and nothing to think about and just to be? What a what a great gift, right? So that's where when somebody is is screaming at you about your Western stooge and, and you have no business being here to begin with and, and your skills are the skills of a kindergartner or whatever it is, yeah. Me and my amygdala have a happy little conversation <laughs> and we go into listening mode. And I think moving up from the physical to the emotional, it's stop and breathe and listen. But then, and I think this is true in any difficult conversation about politics or about policies or anything else. Once you've done that and you're in listening mode to move into the mental space, you can ask, what can I learn in this setting? Right. So somebody disagrees with you fervently around politics and your impulse is to start screaming back and then you're screaming at each other and that doesn't benefit anybody. Ask, OK, here's somebody. Human being has very different views. What can I learn in this situation? Which immediately 
helps ease some of the combative energy uh, in the room. And then if you feel very brave and you want to move up to the, to the spiritual place, uh, you can ask, what do I share with this person? And that's a very, very powerful question, especially when you disagree with each other really, really fervently to move into what can I learn here? And then finally, what do I share with this person? And I mean, on a, on a profound uh, transcendental uh, place, what do I share can be something as, as fundamental as the, the light of the divine, right? At, at some level, we're all connected. And so if you can see that, I mean, literally visualize that in somebody uh, with whom you have visceral disagreement, um, it's a powerful thing to do. And I want to say with an extreme caveat, if you're actually unsafe, either physically or emotionally, don't do any of this stuff. Just get to safety. That should go without saying, but it doesn't always. So before you get into the room, this is a particular mindset that you're talking about. It's not necessarily how we all go through the world. Is there something that you do to prepare for a meeting of, of this consequence? It's nice that you asked, Hanuman, because for my book, I, I asked a lot of facilitators this conversation, and it's really interesting. So many folks um, are rooted in the kind of scientific, rational, technical world. And when you ask this question, it turns out most of them have deep spiritual lives that we're just trained never, ever to ask about. And, and so a, a guy I know who works for a very technical agency that's actually housed in the Department of Defense uh, he talks about invoking the spirit of, of the Virgin Mary in, in the room when he does. And so, sure, I, I have my own personal practice. I have a, about an hour of, of prayer and meditation in the morning that helps uh, root me. And then going in, I'll kind of set an intention for the process. And then it, it, from there on, it really is just trying to be present. I think when we're working with anybody that, that we can often overlook is the cultural fluency and, and understanding uh, where somebody is coming from in their own background and how what we say to one person sits very differently when we say it to another person. And so navigating that in itself, I assume, is a, a whole area of study. So let's start with that, I think. Um, do you have any stories about navigating? cultural differences in these conflict management contexts? Sure. I run into cultural uh, faux pas all the time. And then oftentimes I find out about them when, when I run into them. So I, I know enough to know that, that I don't know. And so I think the basin that I know the best is, is the Jordan Basin between the Israelis and Arabs. And there, I mean, every, every geographic location has at least three names, and each one is tied to lots of history and political nuance, and and so calling the wrong thing at the in the wrong way is is one of those triggers. But it can be something even in our own backyard. I, I went here to uh, Utah, Provo, Utah. I was working with the U.S. Uh, Bureau of Reclamation on Western water issues, and showed up for an eight o'clock meeting, which meant I had been up since four o'clock uh, my time. And showed up, and and like most, you know, most Americans, they're just ready to get to work. Let's just get to work. Let's not get to know each other or, or you know share anything about each other. Let's just get to work. And I was a bit taken aback. It's like, can I at least get a cup of coffee? And they all kind of looked at me. And in the back of my mind, I'm going, Oh, Provo, Utah, 
coffee's a trigger. I mean, it's it's the kind of thing, you know, had I been more awake, had, had I been more caffeinated, I would have recognized that I'm in the heart of uh, Latter-day Saints country and, and coffee was not something that most people ask for when they show up. And I would have been more culturally sensitive to, to my surroundings. And that's the kind of thing that happens all the time, all the time, you know, being, a, being aware of now I'm, I'm more aware when, when Ramadan is happening. And, and so, you know, recognizing that people will need breaks for prayer to eat or break the fast or different traditions, something as simple as, as eye contact. You know, we in the West, we're, we're, if somebody doesn't make eye contact, we're suspicious of them or, or a firm grasping handshake. If they don't do that, we're deeply suspicious and recognizing there's cultures all over the world, including indigenous cultures within North America, where eye contact is seen as threatening and, and offensive. And you certainly never make eye contact across genders in some places or uh, between status and hierarchy in other places. And this idea of a, this grasping handshake, I had a, worked a bunch with, uh, with tribes out here in the West, and we were talking about with a lot of tribes, it's much more of a kind of a gentle, um, said, what is it? What is it with white people? They got to grab everything and, and, and try and choke it. It's like, just connect with me. Just, that's all I'm asking. Just connect. And, and so these are the kinds of things that, like I said, I, my experience is if you go with good intention and openness about what you do and don't know, people are often very, very forgiving. But I, I certainly don't try and bluff my way through stuff. Or, or And that's why, as I say, I, I always work with somebody local who'll be able to inform about all these different issues. One of the things I do as an, as an icebreaker is I set people up for a, what they think is an arm wrestling game. But the directions if you listen to the directions, it's clear that it's a collaborative game. That they should be working together. But as soon as they get into this arm wrestling position, they stop listening. And, and they're in what's called entrenched thinking. And they just, no matter what I say, when I say go, they're all arm wrestling. Even though the, the way to actually win is to collaborate with each other and get as many points that way. Well, I do this in, in Southeast Asia, in the Mekong, in, a, in another meeting, just to break the ice and get people thinking about their preconceptions and stuff. And so they're in arm wrestling position and I say, go, and nobody moves. Nobody moves, not a, not, no, they're not struggling, they're not, nothing. And so again, I'm, I'm working with my, my colleague, I kind of sidled up and I said, what's going on? I mean, do they know how to how to play? He said, sure, they know how to arm wrestle. I said, well, why aren't they moving? He said, well, it's it's a matter of honor. It's a matter of face. I said, so wait, they don't want to lose? They'll, they'll lose face if they lose? He said, no, they don't want to win because they would cause the other person to lose face. That is a different orientation. That's exactly the word for it. That's exactly right. So recognizing what that means then when you're thinking in terms of, of conflicts, Westerners often talk about other cultures as being uh, conflict avoiders, and they're not. Somebody described it, said, we're not avoiding conflict. We're just working really hard towards harmony. It's a very different approach. Is that approach, it sounds like what you're saying is that one being non-conflict avoidant is actually moving towards conflict, and the other is orienting towards the outcome of harmony. Is it that one is thinking, 
in order to achieve some some resolution, we have to go through the difficult uh, conflict and, and the others. Yeah, there are a lot of places where conflict is seen as a community, is owned by a community. And so it's not about the individual. You know, we, we think about the individual and we want to punish them or isolate them or when somebody's perpetrated something, it's about the individual. And in a lot of places, it's much more about the group. And so if there is a dispute, in, in many places, there's a formal ceremony of forgiveness where the, the perpetrator will come to the party that they've aggrieved and formally ask for forgiveness. And so that's a way of, you know, when they, when they committed whatever act they committed, they took power away uh, from this other party. And now this is an act of, of giving that power back asking for forgiveness and to fix how it's been described to me as is a rent in the fabric of the community. That's how conflict is seen. And then after it happens and, and, it, and there's a meal and, and a formal ceremony, um, in some places, they'll never talk about it again. They just, it's as if the conflict never, ever took place. I think that's the kind of thing that we in, in the West could learn a lot from. I mean, think about what we could do with the ceremonies of reconciliation and, and of forgiveness, uh, where we celebrate together, recognizing the torn fabric of, of our past and trying to move forward into a healthier future. What really stands out for me about what you just said is the humility that's integral in that approach. I wonder how to bring humility into a situation where that isn't the orientation of the people involved. Yeah, that's probably the question of the age, right? I mean, one, one of the things that I've noticed, even in really painful conversations here uh, in the U.S., I mean, the, the most contentious issues of abortion or guns or now these horrible murders in, in schools and at supermarkets. One of the approaches that I think is helpful is, is to perpetually remind us how much we have in common, especially around our shared values. I think so much of how we have the conversations, whether it's, it's social media or, or, or actual media, is so heavily emphasizing the positions, the things that divide us. I'm pro-gun, I'm anti-gun, I'm I'm red, I'm blue. And that really is where we spend so much of the conversation. But as I mentioned before, an exercise I do both in, in facilitated processes and in, in the classroom is I'll have people role play on opposite sides of the most contentious issues that there are. And I'll give them three minutes to find three things that they have in common. And people do instantly. And the fact that two things happen. One in those conversations, in, in other parts of training and workshops, we'll also simulate um, triggering an amygdala. And, and there you can really, when somebody is hearing something they disagree with for the first time, it can really trigger you. What's interesting in these, in these exercises, when the intention is to find commonality, the amygdala leaves you alone. And so your intention going into a conversation helps to inform how you're going to react to it. And if your intention going in is to learn, is to, is to find commonality, you can, from the outset, have a healthier conversation. So often when you set out to have these conversations, it's to persuade, it's to uh, overpower, it's to win. And simply 
starting with self-humility is a way to have a, a much healthier conversation. But the other thing that happens is we, we're reminded over and over how much we do have in common. So I mentioned the, the, the deep sanctity of life that both sides of the abortion debate uh, believe in deeply at their core. The concern about, about global change. I think is much more universal than we give credit to where we differ is on how much is is human driven. And for so much of what we need to do, it deeply doesn't matter. So let's focus on how we can react to the part we agree about, that there is change happening. How do we make our cities more resilient? How do we make our coasts more resilient? How do we deal with, with forest fires and floods and droughts? These are conversations we can and should be having rather than focusing on the 10 or 15 percent that we differ on. Have you ever been a part of a conversation or negotiation that at the beginning there was just these entrenched positions where they clearly all the sides wanted to win? And then there was a a moment uh, this transformation that that you describe in these in these dialogues feels sort of shamanic to me, these moments of, of energy shift. And I wonder how, how somebody who's so deeply dug into their position, if, the, if there's a story you can tell about humility or their, their position fading like that. That happens all the time because, because people start with their positions, right? They start with what it is they want. And that's the whole process is to move from, from what they want maybe to what they need to maybe what everybody needs to maybe figuring out justice and equity. So there's a truism in, in the facilitation world that the issue is never the issue. So when, when Israelis and Palestinians are talking about water, you know, for the Israelis, they're problem solving. You know, they have they have water for their basic needs. They have, um, and so they're calculating what's the what's the most efficient use of water. What's the how much do we invest in desalination? And when the Palestinians are talking about it, they're talking about uh, water is representing either physical water that they don't have, literally in Gaza, not enough for uh, sustainability or or even survival in, in some cases, or emotional water. Water is tied to history and sovereignty and, and power and and all of these things. And so that's what comes to the table when we're nominally talking about water. And one of the one of the more powerful things that we're rooted to is our position in a basin. So some of the grand debates or or divisions that are going on right now is upstream countries in the developing world want to build dams. So one of the ways to, to help bring people out of poverty and provide electricity and, and to do the things that you know we in the in the West spent most of the 40s and 50s doing. Um, and now there's so much pressure against them to, to follow the same paths. And the downstream countries feel very threatened by these upstream dams. So Ethiopia is building a, a huge dam that concerns Egypt and, and Laos is building dams that concern Vietnam and Turkey's building dams that concern Iraq. So this is, this is happening all over the world. And in these workshops, this moment that you, you've described is when I put a map of their basin up without national borders. Two things happen almost simultaneously. One is they're lost. Wait, where am I? I don't see any of my 
boundaries that I'm used to, any of the walls that make me feel safe, any of the any of my touchstones that define my my existence, and then a, a, a dawning recognition, and you can almost see it on their face. Oh my gosh, we are all connected. Oh my gosh, everything within this basin is connected to everything else. We're all tied to each other, and then you can you can work with that. If if you can role play where the downstream countries play the upstream country, or or we play with a basin without borders on the map, and we see what kinds of decisions we would make if we weren't rooted in our our national interests. These are exactly the kinds of moments that happen enough so that we are able to move these dialogues forward. What does that moment feel like to you to see this change in people? I don't know how to describe it except it's antithesis. So if you picture, I mean, you, I know you're a little kid, so I know you know what M80 is. So when you, like when an 80, M80 goes off and you feel like a, a concussion in, in your stomach, right? You feel a little bit of percussion going off, right? So that's, that's the negative aspect of this. I think there's also the positive equivalent when this happens is that, that there's a little puff of positive energy that uh, moves like a wave through a room. And, and you see it. If somebody, uh, if somebody says something nice about the other side and suddenly everybody is complimenting everybody else, when, if somebody um, listens particularly well to somebody else or reflects on what it must be like to be in somebody else's position, these are the kinds of things that are contagious. And that initial um, percussion uh, resonates throughout the room. So I, I think it really is contagious in a way that's, that's addictive. So there's a physical shift that you experience. I think so. So this this episode is where we're we're exploring conflict management within systems. I wonder if if there are systems that you've experienced that have baked into the process conflict management and uh, a little bit more to that. There's something that you said you're looking for these moments of you're being aware of the places where people are uh, having tension, whether it be fear or anger or or uh, these emotions that are actually representing vulnerability that they're they're protecting, and it's that vulnerability. Of course, at at a, at a very small scale, I I think um, some aspects of this are embedded culturally, and you know they're they're local communities all over the world that have this kind of idea that the relations in the community are a community value and that when these get torn or 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 rent it's incumbent on the community to to help heal and so there's uh, processes in in afghanistan they they call it a lawyer jirga where the the group brings or the elders bring people together to resolve issues or or there's a this wonderful ceremony in in I learned about it in in Palestine called the Sulha. I think it's it's more Middle East wide, uh, where it's a it's this ceremony of forgiveness, and and the goal is is a combination of justice and honor, uh, which is something that that again we don't have is is the balance of, and I've seen it enacted. I've seen it in in uh, Bedouin land courts, for example, where where the judge will say something to one party, you're right. But can we come to an agreement where the other side can also take care of his family? 
right? This is the kind of thing that I think is is um, the, this balance between the needs of the individual and the responsibility to the group. This happens. I don't know if it's scaling up, uh, but I like to think that people who are doing this work, either around individuals or around communities, where they're helping people I think that the key skills are one, listening better. I think when you truly listen to people, you get well past the stories and the masks and the, I think people who have deep mindfulness practices are used to doing this with themselves is where they listen deeply to themselves. They can get past their own uh, kind of masks and boundaries and, and get at more of a truthful observations. I think it's true of other people too. If you listen very deeply to somebody else, you can understand and empathize much more with who they are and what their, their needs are. And so I think that that's what this would look like. People who listen better to each other, who take more of a, of a community approach to our aspirations and who feel that that justice and mercy or self and other or boundedness and openness are really not opposites, but rather two very complementary attributions, both of which need to be respected, um, both in individuals and in society at, at large. What happened in this uh, example of the Mekong Basin? They now have a clause in their agreement on how to manage uh, transboundary environmental impacts, and they've been doing these collaborative workshops. and And it's just such, it's a, such a wonderful part of the world, and they've done so much, really, to teach the rest of the world about these really, really difficult uh, issues, even around uh, areas of tension. So we're, I'm now working in, in Central Asia, and we're thinking we'll we'll take this group to the Mekong because they've done such a remarkable job in their own basin. I think they have a lot to teach people who are just crafting their own agreements as well. Thank you so much, Aaron. Thanks, Hanuman. Thanks for listening to our interview with Aaron Wolf. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with your friends. And tune in next time when we'll talk with Karen Ziegler about how she navigated conflicts as the senior pastor of an LGBTQ church in Greenwich Village at the height of the AIDS epidemic. Before we go, it's time for Ask Dan. Have you ever wanted to ask Dan Goleman anything about emotional intelligence, mindfulness, meditation, or leadership? (laughs) Or maybe purpose or life in general? If you've got questions, Dan has answers. Submit your question via voicemail at keystepmedia.com slash askdan. Your question could be selected and featured on an upcoming episode. Hi, Dan. How to love and know oneself better? Uh, I actually hear two different questions there. One has to do with self-compassion, loving yourself. And the other one has to do with knowing oneself. And I think that uh, an answer to both of those has to do with acceptance, with both knowing who you are, how you think, how you react, what your emotions are, and being okay with that. Not trying to feel you need to fix it necessarily, not feeling uh, that there's something wrong with it, not judging it, but just 
being with it, just finding a way to uh, let it be accepted and to love yourself for how you are right now. Not love yourself for achieving some goal or changing, but you, just as you are right now. And that's our show. Special thanks to Cora and Dan, whose voices you heard at the top of our show, and to our guest, the good doctor, Aaron Wolf. You can find more about his work at transboundarywaters.orst.edu. And if that link is too hard to remember, just check our episode notes on our website, firstpersonplural.com. While you're there, you can check out our guest bios, transcripts, and resources mentioned in today's episode. You can also follow us on Instagram, at keystepmedia. If you enjoyed our discussion with Aaron Wolf, check out some of our past interviews. I'd recommend the episodes with Brittany Bennett and Akila Kolazar. None of this would be possible without our incredible team. Our hosts are Daniel Goleman, Hanuman Goleman, and Elizabeth Solomon. Bryant Johnson creates the beautiful art you see with each episode. Our audio editor is Michelle Zipkin. Zarina Carden does marketing. Our music is by Amber Ojeda and Ghost Beats. And I am Carrie Seed. This podcast is sponsored by Keystep Media, your source for personal and professional development materials focused on mindfulness, leadership, and emotional intelligence. Next time, we'll dive deeper into conflict management with our guest, Karen Ziegler. Until then, take care of yourself, and we'll talk soon. If you enjoyed today's episode, please rate our show and submit a review. It helps us spread the word about the show. If you want to go the extra mile to support our show, you can become a patron. For as little as $5 a month, you can get exclusive access to extended interviews and behind-the-scenes content. Sign up at patreon.com slash firstpersonplural.